0: Let's have a word of prayer together. Gracious Lord, we come to you. We thank you for your many blessings to us. We thank you, Lord, for those who have been coming out night by night. And we ask that as we delve further into your word tonight, that the spirit of the living God will indeed guide and direct and lead us. Thank you, Father, for hearing us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Tonight... Our topic is the Scarlet Woman. A little while ago, a man got on an airplane in Los Angeles, and he was going to fly to Oakland, which is in the San Francisco Bay Area. And as the plane took off, it kind of swung out around the Pacific Ocean, but he didn't think too much about it. The plane, when it takes off, would make a loop around to get on course. And it should have only been a short flight. But as he sat back in his chair and just started to read, it began to dawn on him that it was taking an awful long time to get over from Los Angeles over to Oakland. And uh, he looked out and he still saw the water beneath him. And after riding for about four hours... He finally decided something's not right, so he talked to the flight attendant, and he said, excuse me, ma'am, how many hours will it take to get to Oakland? And the lady looked at him and said, well, it depends on where you're at and where you want to go, but about 11 hours. And he said, what? What? She says, yes, don't you realize that this plane is going from Los Angeles to Auckland, New Zealand? There was nothing he could do. He was on the wrong plane. He was very sincere. He just happened to get on the wrong plane. When he finally got to Auckland, it took him a little bit of maneuvering, but he finally got back onto a flight and turned around and headed back home. 22 or more hours just riding around, thinking he was on the right course, but not realizing that he wasn't going to the destination that he originally intended to set out for. And you know, oftentimes, the same thing with people. We may have good intentions, we may mean well, but sometimes we're not going in the right direction. And We need a guide. We need something or someone to put us on the right road. And this is what God gives us in the scriptures. This is why he sent Jesus to point us in the right direction. For there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is what? Death, you see. And because of this, If we really want to know what God's plan is for our lives, for this world, we need to turn to the book that can help us with that. Many years ago, the Old Testament talks about um, a prophet by the name of Elijah. Now, Elijah, the story of Elijah is found in 1 Kings, and As we look at the story of Elijah, there's a lot said about him. But in particular, the 17th and 18th chapter, it starts to talk about how Elijah was living at a time when even though he was very sincere, his nation, which was supposed to be the Israel of God, the people of God, were going in the wrong direction. You see, the name Elijah itself means Jehovah is my God. And I think there were times when he had to keep reminding himself of that because he saw apostasy all around him. King Nahab, who was supposed to be the leader of God's people, had married a Phoenician princess by the name of Jezebel. And Jezebel, when she came to Israel, she was a worshiper of the Phoenician god Baal, or Baal, as they would call it. And before long, she began to import some of these pagan ideas into Israel. And a syncretism, that means a blending of the worship of the true God and Baal began to come together. As a matter of fact, the people would go over and worship in the temple of Baal, And then they'd go down the street and worship in the temple of Jehovah, Yahweh. And they were confused because there are two systems that are in conflict with one another. And before long, the people began to turn more and more to Baal and away from the true God. And God called Elijah to correct the situation, to call them back To the true religion. Because. This woman who is also mentioned. In the book of Revelation. Now she's mentioned in the book of Revelation. There may be some comparisons here. She was leading the people of God. In the wrong direction. She was bringing in. Many things. That were not consistent. With the plan of God. And Elijah. Finally appeared before the king and he said, it will not rain for more than three years until there's a reformation and people come back to the true God. In Israel, rain is very important. There are two major rains. The first rain, or the spring rain, that wets the ground and gets the seeds going. That's called the early rain. And then later on in the year, they have what's called the latter rain. The latter rain matures the crop. It swells the head of the plant, the ears of the wheat. They call it corn, but it's really wheat. It swells them up, and we find that it swells the crop and the fruit, becomes nice and fat and ready for plucking. And so, they depend very heavily on the rains. And Elijah said, God's going to hold back the rains until I say that it should come. Well, after three years, more than three years, three and a half years of drought, things got pretty tough in Israel. And The ground was cracking. The crops had swiveled up. Even the animals were beginning to starve. People were getting pretty hungry and thirsty. And King Nahab looked all around to try to find Elijah. and He couldn't find him. Finally, he sends out a servant who finds Elijah. And when the king is brought to Elijah... The king finally, when he caught up with Elijah, he points to him and he says, You, you're the troubler of Israel. Well, Elijah had spunk. And instead, he says to the king, he doesn't just take it from him. Notice what he says in 1 Kings eighteen eighteen, And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now notice there's more than one. Baal simply means Lord. But you need to understand that Baal worship was actually a fertility worship. It was a nature worship. It was sexually oriented worship. And he said that You're the one that's troubling Israel because you have forsaken the teachings of the true God to chase after false gods, false doctrines, false teachings. And as a result, the king was very upset with him. And Elijah said to him, you call your prophets of Baal to Mount Carmel. I will meet them there. And we'll have a showdown To see who is the true God. And who is not. And so. After telling him that. There would be a drought. For a long time. They finally come to the mountain. Now there was Elijah. Representing the true God. But we find Baal. The prophets and priests of Baal. Together. There were 450 prophets of Baal and there were 400 prophets of the grove. So that makes 850 false prophets representing Baal. Elijah says to them, very simply, we'll build two altars. You build yours for Baal over there. I'll build mine over here for Jehovah. You go first. And so what did they do? They built an altar. They put wood on it. They put an animal sacrifice on it. And the test was they didn't have any fire. Whoever the true God was would send fire down from heaven and would consume the animal. That's how they knew that he was the true God. Now, Elijah had to keep his eye on them to be sure they didn't whip out their Bic lighter and stick it in there when nobody was looking, you see. And so he just kind of kept circulating around a little bit, watching them. All morning long, they kept, Yay, Baal! Yay, Baal! And worshiping Baal, Deliver us, Baal! Baal didn't hear. Now, Elijah had a sense of humor. Uh, You know, some of these old prophets really did. Amos, Amos is excellent. At puns, you don't you don't catch it in English, but in the original language, he used puns all through his writing. But he would say, "Yay bail!" throughout their "Yay bailing." He said, "Hey, now maybe maybe he isn't hearing you. Maybe he's taking a nap." And he'd let them dance around and sing and all they had to do, and all afternoon they were doing it till they were "Yay bail! Yay bail!" Ah. Baal, help us. They were getting worn out. And he says, well, maybe he went on a vacation and he just forgot to tell you. And he's really sticking pins in them. Finally, they're, yay, Baal, yay, Baal. They were all worn out and nothing happened. So what did Elijah do? Okay, it's my turn now. He built an altar for the true God. He also put wood on it. He also cut up an animal and put it on the top. And then, so they wouldn't accuse him of cheating, he dug a trench all around the altar and he ordered some of the people to go down and get big, big jugs of water. And they came and they poured it on. He says, that's not enough, go get some more. They went and got another one, poured it on, another one. Until this thing was soaked and the water had filled the trench all around. And then, what did Elijah do next? Elijah prayed and the Lord all of a sudden, boom! Bolt of lightning came down. So this fire came down from heaven. Not only did it consume the animal... It consumed the wood. It consumed the rock that made up the altar. And it sucked up and dried up all the water around. And the people immediately fell down. You see, before they knew which God was the true God and which wasn't, Elijah said, how long are you going to be in the valley of decision? If you're going to worship Baal and the heathen gods, do it. If you're going to worship the God of heaven, do it. But get off the fence. How long will you halt between these two opinions? And so we find that when the fire came down from heaven, they said, yay, the God of heaven, Jehovah, he is the true God. And Elijah then told the king, That the rain would come. Look at Malachi 4 5, and it says that in the last days, the Elijah message will be repeated again. Actually, Malachi 4 5 is really the last prophecy of the Old Testament. Notice what it says Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before. The coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Elijah. Obviously. According to the scripture. He went to heaven. So the people at that time believed. That. Elijah had to come back. Before the Messiah. And so they were looking for Elijah to come back again. When Jesus Was walking the earth. They were confused about this. And when John the Baptist came preaching. They said. When's Elijah coming? And Jesus says. Elijah has already been here. Who was Elijah? Elijah was John the Baptist. Now that doesn't mean. That Elijah was reincarnated. You understand. It was the Elijah message. What was the message of Elijah? It was to repent, turn away from false religion, and follow the true God. And you see, John the Baptist, when he came, what was his message? Make straight your lives, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The Messiah is already coming. He's already in our midst. That was the Elijah message in the time of Jesus. And Jesus himself referred to John the Baptist as Elijah. Now he knew the difference because John the Baptist was his cousin. But it tells us in the book of Revelation that at the end of time, there will be another Elijah message. It's found in what is called the three angels messages of Revelation 14. And here, we find that the message in Revelation 14, it tells us, like Elijah, that there will be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit called the latter rain to try to get people ready to fatten them up for the harvest when Jesus comes. And as we look at this at Revelation 14, Verse 6, it says, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having an everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. He talks about worship. Worship God. And as we look further at in Revelation 14, at verse 8, he goes on to say, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Now again, I mentioned that when something is repeated, it's a sign of emphasis. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. What does it mean? It means the syncretism of paganism and Christianity and false ideas and philosophies that have mingled together in the last times. God is calling people out of that confusion. He's calling them into the true light. As a matter of fact, we find that the very language that is used, worship the God who made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, that is actually language coming from the Ten Commandments. It's actually language coming out of the Fourth Commandment. And the seal of God is connected with the fourth commandment. And as we mentioned last time, God talks about holding back the, the angels who were controlling the four winds. Don't let them blow on the earth until his people are sealed in their forehead. So what are we finding here? We're finding that the Elijah message, the purpose of it, was to call people back to the worship Of the true God. It's mentioned in the book of Daniel as well. In Daniel chapter 1 and 2. It speaks there. About God's city. God is the king. And on the opposite side. We have Babylon. With Nebuchadnezzar as the king. And when Daniel opens. It looks like. God's people are defeated. Jerusalem is destroyed. Babylon is successful. Babylon's where everything's happening. Jerusalem, nothing's happening. The people have gone into apostasy. Now they've gone into captivity. And why? Until they came to repentance. And then God would restore them once again. Nebuchadnezzar looked like he had defeated the God of heaven. But if you look at the book of Daniel you'll find that the God of heaven defeated Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar himself, it appears, was a converted man. Converted to the God of heaven. And his kingdom that did not repent fell. As a matter of fact, his grandson was on the throne at the night when it fell. He was having a a great feast It was one of their religious holidays. And like a lot of religious holidays, unfortunately, the booze was flowing. What did he do to show how how proud he was, how arrogant he was? He sent for the vessels that had come out of the temple of God, had been taken by King Nebuchadnezzar, the golden vessels, and he had them brought to the party. And there, he and his wives and his concubines and his officers, they all were drinking and boozing out of the sacred vessels. It was more than a party. It was an orgy. And when he was really, really few sheets in the wind, he thought he was having a good time. And then something happened. You see, you can only push God just so far. And when you cross a certain line, God makes it clear that who's in control. All of a sudden, he looks up and his mouth drops open. His eyes bug out. And the prophet Isaiah, many years before, had prophesied this. And we find that there was writing on the wall, on the stone he saw a hand. Just a hand, no body attached to it, and it with the finger was writing on the rock, the stone of the palace. And it said Mini Mini a Parson. It means you have been weighed in the balance. You have been found wanting, that means lacking. And your kingdom is given to the Medes and the Persians. That very night, Babylon fell. Babylon fell. You know, there's very few times you find in the Bible where God himself writes something. He uses penmen. He uses uh, prophets. He uses Bible writers to write the scriptures. But there are I can think of three places in the Bible where God himself wrote it. One was when the tables of the commandments were written on. Here the finger of God wrote these in stone. Matter of fact, he did it twice because the first ones got broken. But he wrote it with his own finger. Here we find he writes on the wall. And then the third time is Jesus. Remember the woman who was caught in adultery? Jesus knelt down and he started to write in the dirt on the ground. The finger of God writing what in each case it represented that God was declaring himself, that it was he was making a decision or a judgment. And so we find here that The king sees this and he realizes because of his arrogance, he knew all about Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. He knew about Daniel and how Nebuchadnezzar had gone insane and Daniel had to run the empire until he got his mind back again. He was aware of all this, but he still was arrogant against Daniel and against the God of heaven. And because of this, that very night, while that handwriting is on the wall, King Cyrus has his men coming in through what was once the riverbed. And in until he finds the two leaf gates opened that Isaiah had predicted. You ought to read Isaiah 44 and 45. It's really, really interesting. He comes in and God left the two-leaved gates open right in front of the palace. Now Isaiah wrote that about 150 years before any of this stuff happened. And he came in and his men went into the palace and Babylon fell. Why? In harmony with the will of God because of the arrogance of the Babylonian religion and the Babylonian king in leading these people astray. Notice what it says in Daniel 5, 1 through 4. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring gold and silver vessels, which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, that's really his grandfather. That's just like... our forefathers type of analogy, which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple and the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstands on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote and it burned it right into the wall. meanie, meenie, Parson. The Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that there's a parallel with the last days and these three angels' messages. Again, they are a warning message. As a matter of fact, in Revelation 14, we find God's last warning message to the world before the coming of Christ. This is the Elijah message the third time. The first time Elijah gave it. The second time John the Baptist gave it. And now God's calling his people in these last days to give that Elijah message. Get your lives in order. Make your way straight for the coming of the Lord. And here we see it says in Revelation 14:7, Fear God. Give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Again, this part here, directly from the fourth commandment. The Bible talks about two women in the book of Revelation. One, the pure chaste virgin. The other is called the harlot of Revelation, the whore of Revelation, the prostitute of Revelation. Why? Because she has blended teachings of different religions into her teachings. And notice, I want you to know she's holding up a cup. The cup of the indignation it mentions. What does the cup symbolize? The wine that's in that cup symbolizes the teachings, the false teachings that this woman has. And Later on, it mentions that the woman rides the beast. If a beast is a government, the woman would be the one that would be governing it or leading it. And we find that a woman in scripture represents a church. It represents a religious body. And notice what it says in Revelation 12:1. Now, a great sign appeared in the heaven, a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Stars are messengers, of course, and I want to go back to that. Stars are messengers. And the Christian church was built on the 12 apostles taking the message to the world. And we find that the sun and the moon, the Old and New Testament, upon which this woman would build the uh, teachings of the church. But this isn't what the the harlot has. Notice what it says in Revelation 17 5. And on her forehead, the name was written Mystery, Babylon the Great, the Mother of Harlots, and the Abominations of the Earth. What is abomination? The word abomination is usually connected with idolatry. But the word abomination. If I may paraphrase it, it's anything that makes God sick. You know, something that God can't stand is an abomination. And we find that she's called the mother of harlots. What does that what does that tell us? That this woman would have children, she would have daughters, who would likewise teach things that are not harmonious. With the scriptures. Back in the Tower of Babel. When all this confusion took place. We find that the word Babel itself. Meant confusion. And it was there originally. From Babel. That pagan ideas began to undermine. The teachings of the true God. As a matter of fact. After a while, people became so confused. It says in Revelation 17:2, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Her habits, her teachings, and so forth, when they make you drunk, you're inebriated, you're confused, you're, you're mixed up. And this is what it does. We no longer know what the teachings or the truth of God is. Now, I want to bring out to you that there are two major teachings that Babylon has that has affected us even today. And we need to understand this. There are many, there are many different uh, teachings with which I think the scripture is very clear that Babylon Uh, is against the word of God. But there are two in particular that have caused tremendous impact upon the world. One is that which governs the state of the dead. The Bible says that when a person dies, he goes into his grave. Whether he's a good man or a bad man, he goes into his grave, and there he waits for the second coming of Christ. It says in Ecclesiastes 9:5, for the living know that they will die, but the dead, what do they know? Nothing. If the dead know nothing, then how could people communicate with the dead? How can we expect that the dead are going to try to contact human beings? You see. The idea of reincarnation, the idea of, of uh, spiritualism, spirit mediums, so forth. Even our loved ones trying to contact our loved ones when they die. Where is this coming from? If your loved ones after a funeral try to contact you, that isn't really your loved one. That's the devil taking advantage of your grief, you see. And there are those who are teaching that you can communicate with the saints, even with Mary. But if Mary or the saints are talking to you, I wonder who you're in contact with. If the dead are truly in their graves. And because of this idea, not only in the Catholic world, but in the Protestant world, it undermines the whole second coming of Jesus. Because if when you die you immediately went to hell or you immediately went to heaven or even if you went to purgatory, uh, why would you need the second coming of Jesus? You've already arrived at your final destination, right? So if, if Cain and Abel died and one went down and one went up, why would they need the second coming of Christ? They've, they're already there. You see, that's what this does. And because immortality of the soul causes so much confusion, it has caused people to even have to invent interesting interpretations of the scripture. For instance, the futurism and the secret rapture, the counter-reformational theologies. You see, we have to have... The saints raptured away. Why? Because their bodies are still in the grave, remember? Well, if they're raptured away, well, we've got to come back again later and get their bodies. And so this is why they have the gap theory. You're raptured up here. You wait seven years. Jesus comes again, and you can get your body. But is that what the scripture says? The scripture says, no. You you lie Your body lies in the grave. The breath returns to God. And when Jesus comes back, he breathes into you that breath of life and you come up a resurrected being no matter what the time period is in between. So we find all kinds of interesting interpretations that came up because of the state of the dead. Notice in Revelation 14.9 it says, If anyone worships the beast or his image and receives his mark, in their, in his forehead or in his hand that if he received the mark in his forehead or his hand, he was going to be prepared to receive the wrath of God. Now, as we mentioned earlier, the seal of God is connected with our, our conscience. We either accept the mark of the beast And the teachings and traditions of the beast power. Or we accept the seal of God. Which is bringing our lives into harmony. With the commandments of God. And notice what it says here. That the commandments have indeed been tampered with. Why? Because we find that the scarlet woman. Has tampered with the commandments of God. And is teaching people to, do, uh, to uh, observe something that is not true. This is from Catholicism and Fundamentalism, page 38. It was the Catholic Church that decided Sunday should be the day of worship for Christians in honor of the resurrection. Now, what was to be given in honor of the resurrection? Baptism by immersion. There's nothing that authorizes you to change a commandment of God. Here, they would keep Sunday in place of the Bible Sabbath. Reason and sense demand the acceptance of one or the other of these two alternatives, either Protestantism and the keeping of Saturday. Notice, Protestantism or the keeping of Saturday or Catholicity, and the keeping holy of Sunday. Compromise is impossible. Who said that? I didn't say that. Cardinal Gibbons did. What he is saying is. Protestants keeping Sunday. Are closet Catholics. That's basically what he's saying. And he's saying. Logic and reason says. You Protestants. If you're going to be Protestants. And not accept the authority of the papacy, you better start keeping Sabbath according to the scriptures. And either that or become full blooded Catholics. Because he says we changed it by our own authority, not because of the scripture, but because the church said so. That's quite a bold statement. He's referring directly to the commandments of God. So, we find that there's two women, the churches that accept the authority of the papacy. Remember, she has many daughters. Doesn't matter if they call themselves Catholic, Protestants, or whatever. If they are keeping a day that contradicts the scripture, they fall under the jurisdiction of, of the Scarlet Woman. Notice what it says, The Faith of Millions by Reverend O'Brien, page 421. But since Saturday, not Sunday, is specified in the Bible, isn't it curious that non-Catholics who profess to take their religion directly from the Bible and not from the church observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Yes, of course, it is inconsistent. But the change was made about 15 centuries before Protestantism was born. They have continued to observe the custom even though it rests on the authority of the church and not upon the explicit text of the Bible. That observance remains the reminder of the mother church from which all non-Catholic sects broke away like a boy running from his mother, but still carrying in his pocket a picture of his mother and a lock of her hair. What is he saying here? He's saying, my children, come back home. Isn't that the cry we hear from Pope Francis? You departed children, come back. And I don't know if you recall But just a few months back, there were some major televangelists and some major Protestant denominations who told the Pope that they were praying for him and that they were in harmony with his call and his goals. My friends, what are they doing? They're coming back into Babylon. God is calling his people out of Babylon. Notice what it says, Faith of Millions, by O'Brien again. When the priest announces the tremendous words of consecration, he reaches up into the heavens. He brings Christ down from his throne and places him upon our altar to be offered up again as the victim for the sins of man. What what does the book of Hebrews say? It says that Christ died once for all. He doesn't have to die again. But it says here, it is a power greater than that of the saints and the angels, greater than that of seraphim and cherubim. The priest brings Christ down from heaven and renders him present on our altar as the eternal victim for the sins of man. Not once, but a thousand times, the priest speaks, and lo, Christ, the eternal and omnipotent God, bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's command. Whew! Those are powerful statements. I have at home the book; it's commonly referred to as the Silva. It's the Duties of the priest, written by by Delagari, and he quotes in there, he says, The power of the priest is even greater than the power of Mary. Now stop and think about it. Why? Because Mary can only forgive your sins, but lo. The priest, by saying uh, hocus corpus meum, he can create the Creator. He can create the body and the blood of Jesus. So Mary could only give birth to the Messiah, but the priest can create him. My friends, that's the sign of a cult when you start saying that you can do things that only belong to God. And I don't know if you know it or not, but if you look back in the, the ancient history books, it was called the cult of Mary. And we find that some of these things that are, are considered powers on the part of the papacy are very powerful, powerful statements. That's why it's called Mystery Babylon. Did you ever notice the words when the priest says it over the bread, he says, hocus corpus meum. Now, in the Middle Ages, most of the people didn't understand Latin. They, they just knew their native language, German or whatever it was. And so when they saw the priest go up front and he said, hocus corpus meum, all they heard was hocus-pocus. And suddenly, this becomes the actual body and blood of Christ. That's where the expression hocus-pocus comes from. It comes from the mass. Because the priest, by magical powers, makes the body and blood of Christ. But the scripture says they were symbolic of the body and blood of Jesus. When he broke the bread, when he passed the wine... He said, do this in remembrance of me. When he says, this is my body, you've got to remember Jesus also said, I am the door. Does that mean he was made out of wood? You see. And he uses this analogy many times. Are we to take it literally or figuratively? Revelation 14.8, it says, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. That great city... Why? Because she had them drink of the wine of her fornication. Look at Revelation eighteen one through 4. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons. Man, uh, you can get reincarnation. And also, if people are talking to their dead brothers and sisters, aunts, uncles, grandmothers, saints, or whoever they are, if they're really in their grave, who are they talking to? They're talking to demons, impersonating their loved ones. And it says, a prison of every foul spirit. No wonder. There's so much pedophilia in the priesthood and so forth because of forced celibacy. Celibacy is a gift, not a requirement. You see, you get all kinds of foul things coming in. A cage for every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. That's why she's called the harlot of Babylon. And the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. Selling beads, selling uh, charms, statues. They've become quite rich, based that dead saints can help you. All they can do is sleep until Jesus comes. You see, and look at Revelation eighteen one through four, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, "Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues, the plagues are going to be poured out upon those who continue to practice what the harlot of Babylon teaches. So, my friends, God is calling us away from those things. He's calling for a new reformation. He's calling for a reformation back to true godliness. He's calling us to come out of those things that the reformers, turning to the scriptures, called us out of. Why? Because we are living in the end times. The latter rain is about to be poured out. It will be poured out upon those who are sincere. It will be poured out upon those who want to follow Christ all the way. Those who are willing to stand up for the right and to make their decisions. And believe me, that, like I said, Christianity isn't for wimps. It's going to take courage. People are going to call you crazy, they're going to call you a cult, they're going to call you uh, that you're trying to work your way into heaven. They're going to say all kinds of things against you. But the question is, will we stand on the authority of scripture, or will we stand on the authority of tradition? Believe me, it'll cause problems between your husband and wife, mother and father, you and your kids, whatever. But will we stand for the right though the heavens fall? That's where the test comes in. That's what Christianity is about, and that's what the martyrs of old stood for. My friends, in John ten, fourteen it says of Jesus, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and am known of by him, uh, known by my own. What does that mean? It means that we need a guide that will guide us through, lead us through to the promised land. We're not to be like the fellow good-intentioned as he was who got on the plane thinking he was going to Oakland and ended up in Auckland, you see. He had to come out of Auckland back to Oakland. And God is telling us come out of the confusion in the teachings, and I don't care who teaches them, Protestants, Catholics, Mormons, or whatever. He wants us to come out of that confusion, back to the word of God, back to the example that Jesus deliberately set for us, and into harmony with our Lord and Savior and the Scriptures. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That's a decision every soul has to make individually. You are, res- you are responsible for your own soul. No one else can make that decision for you. Remember, God has children but no grandchildren. It means every human being has to be born again in Christ. Revelation 14:12 says, "Here is the patience, the steadfastness of the saints. Here are those who keep all of the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. All of the commandments of God also includes the seventh-day Sabbath. If it's good to do much good to keep nine of the commandments, or eight of them, all 10 of them. And the faith of Jesus, trusting in him. Yes, he's our faithful guide. He's the one that will lead us to victory. I don't know about you, but I was once a member of actually two popular denominations, well-known denominations. I learned about Christ in one of them when I was in my elementary years. But I didn't go very much. Then when I was in my teenage years, I became the youth leader of my church. And there I learned to love my Savior. But it wasn't till I got to college that I actually read the scriptures. And I studied some of these things that we're studying now. And I approached my pastor and I said, how is it? that Martin Luther and that um, John Wesley believed that the coming of Jesus is soon. And you know, I've been in this church my entire teenage years, and I have not heard one sermon on the second coming of Jesus. And his response to me was, well, yeah, I know. We believe that Jesus is coming again. But we don't believe he's coming for another thousand years. So why get the people all worked up? My friends, do you know that Martin Luther, back in the 1500s, predicted that the judgment would be in about 300 years? That brings you up to the 1800s. What started in 1844? You see... I'm reading a book right now on Isaac Newton's commentary on the book of Daniel. Do you know Isaac Newton was a great Bible scholar? He wrote as much, if not more, about the Bible than he did about science. Isaac Newton predicted that the judgment of the new world, you know, uh, Jesus coming and everything, would come somewhere between The year 2000-2050. Isaac Newton. Now we're not time setters. But these men could tell from the scriptures that it wasn't going to be a thousand years from now. It's imminent. And God is calling people out of this confusion. He's calling them back to the word of God. Including the Ten Commandments and the Fourth Commandment. By the grace of God, I don't know about you, but I want to be found faithful when Jesus comes. It's a decision each of us have to make. But by the grace of God, how many of you want to be found faithful when Jesus comes and in harmony with his will? May God bless you. And come back on Thursday night and we're going to be talking about back from the wilderness. Back from the wilderness. So come on back from the wilderness and we'll find out what it's about. Let's have a prayer together. Thank you, O Heavenly Father, for being with us and blessing us. And tonight, help us to stand firm for Jesus, for the truth, for the Word of God. Fill us with your Spirit. In Jesus' holy name, amen.